This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Today is World Down Syndrome Day. Now, what does that mean for most of us? Honestly, probably not all that much because most of us don't have someone in our family who has Down syndrome. Many of us don't interact with people with Down syndrome every single day. We don't have all those connections. However, we all know someone who has a family member. We've all been connected somehow to this. There is, however, an ongoing debate now about this, about this syndrome. More and more countries are doing prenatal screening and aborting fetuses, aborting babies that have a positive test for Down syndrome. In France, the number is, according to reports, the number is up to 77%. In Denmark, it's 98%. In Iceland now, it is almost 100%. In fact, Iceland allows late-term abortions now for fetuses with a deformity, and they have categorized Down syndrome in that as a deformity. Just last week, a columnist with the Washington Post was arguing that she would abort a child if she found out that it had Down syndrome because of IQ issues and challenges and lack of independence that it would face, the child would face for its life as it became an adult. And just this week, a column in the Toronto Star by Heather Malik offered this paragraph. Down syndrome babies are famously loving and lovely. The American Down syndrome infant on the Gerber box is gorgeous, but they may have physical and mental difficulties, including heart defects, hearing loss, eye disease, respiratory infections, and childhood leukemia. They will suffer. One parent may have to quit work, and even then, caring for them at home is expensive, tiring, and difficult. Life will be jagged. It all seems to be pointing towards the fact, all these things and these countries and these studies, that this is something that we should be eradicating. Is it all correct? Well, Jen Krausen is a doctor of social work. She's a Dundas native. She's president of the Down Syndrome Association of Hamilton. She is also a mother of a child with Down Syndrome. She joins me now. Jen, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you very much for having us. Uh, this, obviously, uh, and I don't necessarily think that you're going to uh, believe in it or agree with it, but this is obviously a view that is gaining traction in some places. There are places that are fully buying into this concept that what we should be doing is getting rid of Down syndrome at every turn. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I mean, I have to say, sitting here listening to you, um, it's, uh, first of all, upsetting. And second of all, I, I guess I would really want to point out to everybody that a lot of what you're saying is, is, is wrong. It is misrepresenting, not that you're wrong, but it is misrepresenting what it is like to have an uh, individual with Down syndrome in your life. And, and you know, uh, I mean, I, I'm, almost, I'm almost speechless, but I'm not speechless, if that makes any sense. Because for, if I can speak personally, for me, I am one of the, 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 the few who, who did find out when I was pregnant that I was, going, that I was carrying a child with Down syndrome. And not once did it occur to me to not continue with that pregnancy. But if I was th- that mother in that situation and hearing all of these negative things that, you know, that you've just read off to me, that people are publishing, that the, that the media are publishing, that people are saying, the, the kind of, uh, you know, negative dialect around what it might be like to have a child with Down syndrome, I might have been paused for thought, who knows? 
But, you know, what I think I want people to understand, particularly on this day, today, March 21st, is World Down Syndrome Day. It's a day where where people with Down Syndrome are celebrated for their abilities, for what they can do, for what they can offer the community, is that those health conditions that you named off, for example, are all things that are treatable. You know, yes, it's true that, that children with Down Syndrome, 50% of children with Down Syndrome are born with a heart defect. Most, if not all of those, are able to be surgically corrected. And most, if not all of those babies, go on to have healthy lives with a healthy heart. You know, the hearing issues, these things are treatable. So why is it that we're talking about this one group of, you know, society that are somehow not valued and not valuable enough to 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 be born and to receive those medical treatments so it's just it's worrying on so many levels to me when i hear things like this and and when i hear about countries like iceland bragging about you know eradicating down syndrome i mean what does that mean well there's a few things that you would raise as an issue the, the if you're trying to eradicate something there's a few things that go along with that the perception mm-hmm. one of them is you are most people eradicate illnesses that's what we're trying, we're trying to get yeah. rid of polio yeah. or smallpox yeah. or something is down yeah. syndrome an illness no not in my opinion absolutely not my son is not ill i have a five-year-old son who has down syndrome he is healthy he has an extra chromosome he's not ill he is not suffering and my life is nothing but, you know, anything but jarred with him in my world. You know, so, I mean, I, I hope I, I'm not coming across angry or defensive, but I guess on one level I am. Well, I don't blame and, you. I'm, and I, you know, I don't. When I read these things myself, and I don't have someone in my family, in my immediate uh, social community who has Down syndrome, I certainly yeah. have interacted before, but I don't live with this, but I could certainly yeah. understand. Because, again, if it's not an illness, the other one that talks about Iceland has said that they have accept, made exemptions for late-term abortions for a deformity yeah. and have categorized yeah. Down syndrome as a deformity. Yeah. I, which which also sounds odd. It is not. The extra chromosome, with that comes extra genetic information. And yes, with that comes an increased vulnerability to certain health conditions, which are treatable, as I said earlier. Also with that does come some intellectual, varying degrees of intellectual delay. But with extra support and with acceptance and with, you know, the right attitude, you know, people with Down syndrome are just like any other person. They are, you know, they deserve to be treated like all of us deserve to be treated in terms of having their human rights respected. And when you read things like this, it just really makes me question what people are thinking, that they have the right to say things like that about people like my son. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Jen Krausen, who is... The president of the Down Syndrome Association of Hamilton. Today is World Down Syndrome Day. She is also a mother of a child with Down Syndrome. And Jen, you you mentioned before that you knew through prenatal screening before Mm -hmm. you had your child that he was going to have Down Syndrome. What was the... What was the advice, if any, you received from your doctor? Because when you read reports, especially in places like Iceland, the story for many women is they don't make you abort that fetus, but the pressure is really kind of on to do that. They don't really want you not to. What Did you feel any pressure from your doctor? Um, not from my obstetrician, no. Um, but, you know, you go through a process of genetic screening, and I certainly was ur- urged to consider 
um, terminating my pregnancy. Um, and I made it very clear that that was not an option for me, um, that that it just it didn't even enter my horizon to do that. I wouldn't describe my 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 story as being a bad one in terms of feeling the pressure that I do know other parents have faced. And I and I know that through my role um, within the Down Syndrome Association, because I certainly have spoken to parents who have felt that pressure and have been given that very negative information about what it might be like to raise a child with Down syndrome. And I guess we argue that actually parents should be given the other side, you know, the, the side of what it really is like to raise a child with Down syndrome and what is in fact possible um, for your child. And and I am a person who believes in giving people information when they're being faced with a choice. And I think what I hear all too often from parents is that they're not given balanced information um, when faced with with the diagnosis, with a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. And that worries me when I hear things like that. Well, this has been positioned in many corners already. And again, just doing the reading over the last couple of days, this has been positioned as a, you're either pro-choice or pro-life. This is a, mm-hmm. you either believe in allowing women to have abortions or you don't. And I'm not sure that it's that that that's really where we are here. To me, this it's is not, more, to me, this yeah. falls a lot closer to me into the eugenics category than it does into the, whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. It's about the value we place on the lives of people with disabilities. It's not about abortion for me. It's not about pro-choice or pro-life. It's about, is my son's life valuable? And yes, it is. And yes, are, yes, so are other people's lives who have disabilities. And who are we, you know, to assume that a person with a disability is suffering? Anybody who meets my son knows he is not suffering. But that's the perception. People, people believe that. They're wrong. And maybe they need to come and meet people with Down syndrome and meet other people with disabilities and, and understand, you know, that, that, that is, that is, that is wrong and that is outdated. And, and, you know, 50 years ago, children with Down syndrome were put into institutions. That's a fact. That's not that long ago. You know, I have met mothers. I have spoken to mothers who were actively encouraged not to bring their babies home. And, and, and I, you know, I understand that the world has changed. And, you know, I, I, I guess my position now is that, you know, people with disabilities have a right place in society. And it's the society that needs to take a look at ourselves and how we accept you know, those people with disabilities. And, and I can say to you very honestly, I felt this way before I had Owen in my life. And I obviously feel this way very strongly now because I'm living this. I'm living at this and I'm hearing and I'm reading and I'm seeing, you know, some of these this discrimination that people with disabilities continue to face. And this debate that you, and again, thank you for allowing us this voice, you know, this debate that's going on is just so unfortunate. But the other side of it is, okay, if you make the argument and you're living there, so I, you know, well, I'll believe you that, the, that your child is not suffering. The other argument that would be made is, yeah, but Jen, you are a person who is unique. You are patient. You are uniquely positioned to be able to be a parent to someone who goes through these challenges. Not everybody can be that person. And therefore this would be a huge inconvenience to someone who really can't do what you do. So it's a, the, the, the other things Maybe that were I've written were, few, I've met very few people who are that person, you know, and I've met a lot of parents of children with Down syndrome. I mean, obviously that's the community I knew best. And I would say 99.9% of us love our children, all of our children. Now, and I, and I understand what you're saying, but that's where I think we have a, a, a duty to support families who perhaps have less resource 
um, and who perhaps face barriers that I may not personally face. And, and that is why I'm so actively involved in my local association, because it is possible, you know, with the right supports to, you know, successfully raise a child with a disability and not have your life be, quote unquote, jarred. Well, and, that, and where that comes to ultimately is following the logic that has been put forward by some of these things, that if the child will suffer and possibly the parents too, and I know you've taken issue with that, but nonetheless, if that's the argument that's being put forward, that these things could lead to suffering, it would make sense then that when we do prenatal screening, if the science is there for us to do this, that we should screen for ADHD and allergies and future yeah. cancers and other diseases and, yeah. and, is that and really fetal alcohol syndrome yeah. and then yeah. stop those children. I mean, that would that not, where's the bar? Where is the line that you say, okay, this is the line where it's okay and this is the line. It becomes exceedingly complicated. Yeah, it's a very fine line. And and I mean, we, we can't predict our children's future, you know, and, and uh, you can't predict, you know, what path a child is going to follow and, and what makes Down syndrome so wrong, you know. And, it, you know, if, if you were able to ha- do a genetic test that would tell us that your child was going to have cancer by the age of three, would you, would you, I'm sorry, would you, have, you know, not proceed with your pregnancy? No. And this is such a fine line. And um, it worries me. It is uh, it is a difficult one. It's 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 unfortunate to be talking about this honestly on Down Syndrome Day, but there's so many things that have come up about this that I wanted to raise. It Jen Krausen, uh, president of the Down Syndrome Association of Hamilton, uh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for thank doing this. Thank you, and thank you. And please, you know, if anybody is listening and want to learn more about our community, call us. Come visit us at our office in Dundas. Um, we have a Facebook site, we have a website, and we are very very open to speaking about who we are and what we bring to our community. Jen Krause, and thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I want to pick up on a topic that we we touched on yesterday. We didn't spend a lot of time on it. We ran out of time. But because of the response on the air and off, I wanted to go back to it today because it is clearly something that everyone has an opinion on. Not always the same opinion, but everyone has an opinion on this. And it goes back to the school shooting in Maryland this week. Two people were shot. One is in critical condition. One is now stable. Nobody, except for the shooter, apparently died. That's the good news. No school shooting really is good news, but that's as good news as you're going to get out of one of these. Let me read you the lead of on their website what CNN wrote about this. Here it is. The school shooting was over in seconds, but it could have dragged on longer and proven deadlier were it not for the rapid response of a school resource officer. When a 17-year-old gunman walked into Maryland's Great Mills High School on Tuesday, the swift action of the school's sole resource officer, Blaine Gaskell, was instrumental in bringing the incident to a quick end. Now, this goes right to the heart of what has been discussed following the terrible school shooting in Florida last month. That being, should people, teachers, staff, whomever, should people within schools be armed to hopefully stop a shooter if he, and it's almost always a he, I think it may always be a he, if he decides to show up and try to kill people. Should the schools be protected with weapons? Many people, let's be honest, many people are loath to even consider the possibility that anything Donald Trump says might be something worth considering. I get that. But is this particular incident somehow 
suggesting that maybe in this one case that he's got something right. Well, David Hyde is the owner and principal consultant of David Hyde and Associates Security Management Company. He joins me now. David, thanks for doing this today. You're welcome. Uh, First of all, as we get into this, your inclination from what you have been able to glean about this particular incident, is this what can happen when a school has weapons to defend itself, or does this sound more like a best-case scenario in a never a best-case scenario, but a best-case scenario that it happened that the resource officer happened to be right there and did the right thing, but it really was a bit of a fluke or a one-off. What's your sense on this? I'd say a little bit more of a fluke and a one-off. I mean, obviously, the idea of having armed school resource officers is something that's much more prevalent in the United States. Here in Canada, it used to be much more prevalent to have school resource officer teams in many uh, police departments across Canada. And there still are some now, but they're much receded with the budgets and with the prioritization that needs to happen here. We might see a small deployment of school resource people that are mainly educational, preventative, doing talks to students, some outreach and that. But it's unusual to see um, armed police, um, school resource officers deployed in any kind of a way that would allow them to be on hand or even near a school when a response is required. In the States, it, there, there is more of this. So I think it's a greater, a greater likelihood that on occasionally with these unfortunate shootings, there would be a police officer, that uh, school resource officer deployed either at the school or very close that could respond. These things, unfortunately, typically unfold in a few minutes. So unless the school resource officer is pretty much on scene, almost within sound of the gunshots, there's not much they're going to be able to do typically. And that, that is exactly what I'm asking, that this guy sounds like he heard it, was close enough to respond to it immediately, unlike the ones in Florida who apparently sat outside the school for reasons that I'm not quite sure I understand. This guy leapt into action, and as a result, nobody has, other than the shooter, has died. So that part is the kind of the perfect case scenario. Oh, most definitely, yeah. And, and, and I mean, certainly there, there are a few other examples, both in schools and elsewhere, where somebody with a firearm, whether it's a law enforcement officer or a member of the public that had a legal um, permit to carry in, in the States, was, a, you know, was there present close by when this happened. I, I unfortunately believe that there are many more examples um, of you know, um, go, things going the other way, where the, the, there was no one on hand. Perhaps the officers, in the, in the case of the Florida shooting, didn't, didn't uh, make a, a very good response in that case. And there are many cases where firearms that were supposed to have been deployed for protective purposes were left behind or left in someone's desk or left in someone's car or were otherwise commandeered by somebody or used for, a, for an unlawful purpose or occasionally a, an accident may happen mm. if it gets into the hands of a child or something. Well, okay, so on its face, this sounds very similar to what Donald Trump has been proposing since the Florida shooting. Let's put some guns in the school so if someone shows up, someone can deal with it. That said, this was a cop who shot the person. If this was a properly trained teacher who had grabbed the gun out of the lockbox in the office, do you have confidence that they would have been able to do the same thing? Not really. I mean, obviously, there's going to be exceptions. I mean, you never say that they're always going to go one way or the other. But my experience would suggest that 
you know, it's in order to opt to use a firearm. I mean, look at even police that sometimes can't shoot straight, or when you know, when the when the pressure's on, they're not able to get when the the adrenaline gets going. Yeah, when the adrenaline gets going, it's not as easy as being in the range. People are trained, and again, no detriment to them. It's it's the human condition, right? So when you look at a teacher who who may not use that firearm very often, who may do a bit of training just to kind of keep their status up on it, is an annual certification or training or something. You really can't expect them to have a good command of that weapon and of course there are children in the school that there's so many factors that come into play that you've really got to say on balance looking at it from a from an overall perspective i think it would be probably more dangerous overall in most schools to have armed teachers versus not well even if you even if this situation worked 10 times in a row the minute that you had a teacher pull the gun out and a student was hit by the teacher's bullet, it would be the end of the experiment immediately. Regardless of whether it had solved 10 beforehand, that's the end of this. We know that. You cannot have a teacher shoot a student and everyone say, well, that's just you know collateral damage. That'll never be the case. Yeah, no, 100%. It, it really is something that needs to be thought through very carefully. And all those um, potential negative situations need to be thought through. Nothing's perfect, and you know there's going to be even in the best laid security uh, protection plans, something is going to go wrong, and there may be an occasional error made or something that's not doesn't go perfect. But you certainly can't have a lot of margin for error when we're talking no. about children, firearms in schools. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with David Hyde, owner and principal consultant of David Hyde and Associates Security Management. We're talking about the school shooting in Maryland, picking up on a topic we started last night. And the idea that they had someone in the school who was able to take down the shooter, it was an armed school resource officer. Does this bolster the argument Donald Trump has been making that we should have people in the schools to do this kind of thing? And David, there is, um, it's a joke that is often, or I don't know if it's a joke, it's a line that is often repeated by those in the National Rifle Association, that there's never been a mass shooting at a gun show. They like to say this uh, because nobody would ever be stupid enough to go in and try and shoot a bunch of people who are standing there holding guns. Now, we're not vouching for the NRA, but do you believe that if a student knew there was a student resource, a police resource officer with a gun in the school, that it would diminish someone's likelihood to go in and do something like this? Or is that a dream? Well, I think there's no evidence to suggest that's the case. And I think I just don't think that it's realistic because just look at the number of shootings that have occurred when there were school resource officers or, or, or school resource officers or police officers in the school or nearby. Um, and I mean, I think the, the facts just don't stand up for that. And at the end of the day, like I said, these shootings tend to happen very quickly and they tend often to be targeted, whether the, the shooter goes for a particular classroom or just goes class to class, but they start quite spontaneously, and the damage is done very quickly, particularly in the states where there is access to these more high-capacity uh, firearms that, that are more difficult to access here in Canada. So there's no, you can't turn a school, whether it's here or there, and again, this is largely an American problem, although I think we have had a few up here, but... This is not, you can't turn a school into a fortress. You can't put up five layers of metal detectors and everything else. Students will still be able to get into a school. And I suppose if they really want to do this, they will still be able to do this. So is having a resource officer then, as opposed to a teacher, 
some answer or, I mean, I know you've just suggested that it happens so quickly, there's not much you can do, but is it better to have somebody there than nobody there? Well, look, a level of guardianship or, or oversight that the potential shooter knows that there might be, um, you know, someone there that could that could stop this, or someone there that could bring some assistance. That has the potential to to help a little bit. And I and I guess what I'm where I'm going with this is the approach to school security needs to be one that's holistic. There's no magic bullet here, if I can use that expression. There's no one way to do it. So it's all based on risk, or it should be. What the demographics of that area is. In terms of the risk of violence I'm talking about now, are there, is there something in that community where it suggests that there's a higher risk of violence? What's the history in that school? What's the culture like in terms of threats that have been made in the past or ongoing? When you look through a lens of all the different factors that could impact the risk of violence, that's where you start. And then you put a school security program together that has a variety of measures. Oversight and guardianship is one. A very high-risk school may need a dedicated school resource officer, but the next 25 probably don't. But having the school designed properly, secured properly, locked doors on classrooms, safe rooms in the school, the drills and protocols, visitor rules, the culture of the school, students feel they can come forward to report threats, uh, teachers are trained as to when to spot indicators of potential violence and where to go and how to deal with those. All these things wrap around a robust school security program that is going to be effective versus putting all the eggs in one basket and arming the teachers or, or having the school resource officer armed. Those kind of one-dimensional measures tend not to be effective when put across um, you know, a, a lot of schools. We never thought we'd be, scu- be discussing this 20 years ago, did we? No, I mean, really, the, um, the frequency of these shootings, certainly in the Canadian context, as you said, we've had very few. A couple of, a couple of kind of mass shootings um, that we've really had to speak of, and then some other disparate ones here and there. They're all serious, of course, but nothing like the States. But, but look, we've just seen here in Ontario in the last week or so a number of people that have been spoken to by the police about online threats. They, they watched this unfold in Florida, let's say, and then some students... Uh, a small number, get online, make threats to their own school, you know, and now we see an uptick. So there's always the potential that something happening somewhere else could precipitate something here. So I think we need to be on guard and we need to be looking at our school security and safety. However, I, I don't ag- agree with an with a over-exaggeration and kind of rushing into anything that would, I think, be really um, Ill, ill-suited to the kind of threat that we face here in Canada in our schools. And David, I, you know, I agree. You're the expert. I'm just a uh, passerby here. But I mean, I agree with your concern about the idea. I, I would be not thrilled with the idea of teachers going old west and firing bullets down the hallway. I mean, who knows what can happen then? But I do wonder if this had gone on with almost any other president other than Donald Trump, if the suggestion had been made by the president of something like this, whether it was teachers or something else, do you think it would be more of a discussion? Do you, I mean, would this be something we would be discussing more broadly if it was not him who had recommended? Has he been so polarizing that no one will even listen to it? Well, certainly, I mean, in terms of the mainstream media and, and the center of, 
of, of the states and probably the center here in Canada, I think there would be a bit of a rejection or a pushback on most things that may, may come out of Donald Trump's mouth, and it's especially more controversial ideas. So, yeah, I do think that if it came out of um, a more centrist or, or someone that is viewed as they might have some wacky ideas, but generally speaking, they were kind of fairly center and kind of represented 50% or more of the population. The trouble is that Trump doesn't do that. Um, and he tends to have some, some fringe views, and I think that can really uh, diminish the message. He may even have some good ideas sometimes that perhaps don't hold the weight that they should because people don't really give them uh, that authority. David Hyde, owner and principal consultant of David Hyde & Associates. Really appreciate the time tonight, sir. Thank you for doing this. Been a pleasure. Cheers. Never got a chance. We ran out of time. I was going to ask about the ideas from our callers last night about having former military work as the security guards or having tranquilizer guns. The tranquilizer guns, I must say, I had an image last night after that conversation with the caller of a tranquilizer gun in every classroom and just darts flying all over the school. I mean, nobody would die potentially, although it could be rather interesting to see people just unconscious all over the school with darts just everywhere, but it's a really interesting idea. They're all interesting ideas. I don't think this is the last time we'll be discussing this, especially if this ever happens again and another officer in the school stops it. May not happen ever again, but if it does, I have a feeling this is going to be a discussion we're going to have. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. It is time for Ben's Story of the Day. If you're new to the show, you're saying, okay, who's Ben? Well, Ben is the guy who answers the phones and presses the buttons and makes everything go. He's the operator over here. And every once in a while, once a week usually, I bring in a few of the most ludicrous stories from around the globe, share them with you, and Ben gets to decide which one is his official favorite story of the day. You also can vote. His name is attached to this, but you can email me, radley at 900chml.com, and tell me which would be your choice for the story of the day. Let me share three today that fall into the category of, well, I'll let you decide what word you want to apply to the category. Story number one comes to us from England, where police pulled over a car. doesn't say here what he was doing that required the police to pull him over. Nonetheless, he got pulled over. I'm guessing, based on what comes next in this story, it may have involved alcohol, but I don't know that for sure. But they pull over this car, and even in England, I guess, over in Britain, they say the same thing police here say, license and registration, license and registration, please. They probably said it more like that than we would hear here. But they asked for your license and your registration. Well, he handed his over But there was one small problem. The driver's license that he handed over featured the name Homer Simpson and where his photo was supposed to be actually had a photo of Homer Simpson and down below it had the catchphrase, don't, which probably even for poorly trained police officers, and I'm not suggesting this one was, probably even the world's most poorly trained police officer might have been able to crack this code as a fake license. There's story number one. Who is the person who decides that when they get pulled over by the police, they're going to hand over a Homer Simpson driver's license? Well, this guy did. Story number two. We're going to stay over in Europe. This one... This one's just almost puzzling to me. I can't quite, I've been trying to figure this one out and it's really hard to grasp what's happening here. But 
Police in Germany got called to an apartment. Um, they were called by neighbors to a particular apartment because neighbors were hearing people crying out for help. <laughs> and so they showed up to find out what was the help that was needed. Well, turns out they found a 51-year-old ten, 58-year-old tenant and his 61-year-old visitor this is the phrase that they used, hopelessly locked together with a toy car and a mannequin that was dressed in a knight's costume. <laughs> it does not, by the way, the, it doesn't say that was anything sexual going on. That's unclear. It doesn't say how they were tied together. They were just all tied up with a mannequin, a remote control car, and this mannequin wearing a knight's, like a, you know, clank, 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 knight's outfit. Uh, officers were able to, according to this story, free the men. That's the good news. Unfortunately, again, not too shockingly, the men were too drunk to be able to explain what had happened and how they had gotten tied together. Again, when I say there was nothing sexual going on, by the sounds of it, they were just way too drunk to be doing anything sexual. So this was just a bit of misadventure that somehow they had become hopelessly tied up with a mannequin and 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 a remote control car again i don't really get the car thing i don't get the mannequin either but nonetheless all right that's story number two story number three you know this one i kind of hope this becomes more commonplace because i think this is just brilliant i don't know if it's been the story of the day but to me it's brilliant an american we're back on the mainland here now uh, in the States. An American college student got a text from an old high school classmate. Didn't know him well. It's a female university student that got this text, and it was from a guy that she received it. She didn't apparently know this high school classmate all that well. Didn't really remember him. But he informed her that back in high school, he was a bit of a dweeb. He was, you know, skinny and scrawny and not really notable. Makes sense. She didn't notice him. But he'd now gained 50 pounds of muscle and he'd had a crush on her all of his life. And now he had made himself worthy of her. So would she go out with him? She proceeded to let him know, no, I'm really not interested in you that way. I don't even know who you are, but I'm not interested he was unrelenting, however. He was not going to give up this easily. He's worked out. He's put on 50 pounds of muscle just to get this woman. She says, no, he's not giving up that easily. So he starts sending more and more and more texts. Finally, in his last act of desperation, in a move right out of the Me Too movement, he sent a photo on the text messaging of his junk which she clearly had not asked for a photo of his junk. He just decided this will be the thing that will put it over the top and make this whole thing come together in a big love connection. So you know what her response was? What her answer to this move was? She collected all of these texts, looked up his grandmother on Facebook, and forwarded the whole thing to his grandmother. Junk and all! That's how you get back at a guy who does something like that. I mean, you can go to the police as well, I suppose, but this would probably be worse. So, Ben, your story of the day today. Is it the Homer Simpson driver's license? Is it the guys tied up with a mannequin dressed as a knight? Or is it the woman getting revenge on this guy by letting grandma see his, you know, his stuff? As great as girl sending grandma her grandson's junk, 
I'm gonna have to go with the drunk guys from Germany. The drunk guys from Germany. The randomness of mannequin <laughs> in a knight's costume and a remote car. I, I sometimes wonder what it's like being a police officer, and you walk in the situation of just a hundred percent. Radley at nine hundred chmlcom If you would like to cast a vote for yourself. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show weeknights from six to eight only on nine hundred CHML. Hamilton Bulldogs open their playoffs tomorrow. Now, I know that this city right now has a lot of people who are interested in the Bulldogs and has a lot of people that are saying, ah, I'm not really sure. Well, see, this would be the moment then that you would think that people are going to start to really pay attention to the Hamilton Bulldogs, even those who might not have been on board all along because we're into the playoffs and because this is a team that on paper theoretically, should be very, very good in the playoffs, should be playing for a long time, and potentially, if things go well, if they don't run into a rash of injuries, if all that other things don't happen, this could be a team that potentially should be playing for a championship. That's how it's been built. Will it? Let's find out. Norm Miller is a color analyst of Bulldogs games on Cable 14. He has watched this team as much as anybody this year. And he has been yanked out of soccer practice to join me this evening. And I, I assume you're coaching, not playing, Norm. Yeah, I'm coaching. I'm, I'm past the playing age, Scott. Uh, at what age are you actually coaching? Is this, uh, like, are these adults, are these expert-level players? No, under 13 at uh, Mount Hamilton U. Oh, well, there you go. See, you got to know something if you're coaching. <laughs> so how long are the Bulldogs going to be playing this spring? Are we going to be watching these guys for a while, or are we going to be back here in a week or two saying, what happened? Well, that's a great question. And I mean, the, the, as you know, when you, once you get in the playoffs, Scott, anything can happen, right? And certainly if you look at during the regular season, the way Hamilton played against Ottawa, they, they matched up against the 67s five times. They won all five regular season meetings. So certainly uh, on paper, this looks like an opportunity. It's a one versus eight seed, but we've seen it at all levels of hockey. It's sometimes uh, number eight can, can rise up and pull off the upset. They get a hot goaltender, a couple of hot lines, who knows? Uh, but certainly this Hamilton team and what the moves that Steve Stales and John Gruden did is to try to build a team that can make a long run in the Ontario Hockey League playoffs. Well, and that's the thing, that they this is a team that has been, seemingly anyway, from my perspective, built for the playoffs. This is a team that should, should, and you put it underlined and in italics and in capitals or whatever else, put it in red, should be able to be very good in the playoffs. But with what you've seen, is that what you expect? Well, one thing that Hamilton does have going for it, Scott, and you know you've been down to the rink more than a few times, is they have three solid lines that are capable of scoring. And, and certainly if you look at the playoffs in, in any level of hockey, um, you need to have all, you know, to use the, the, uh, the rowing analogy, you need to have all, all oars in the water and pulling. And so for Hamilton, if they can get all three lines, that makes them a very dangerous matchup for any team, uh, whether you've got the Thomas Strom, an Entwistle line that can go out and uh, and put the puck in the net, or you've got the speed of Studenich and Sajan uh, as well, uh, and then you also throw in the Firebird line with Camano and Moore and Will Bitten, and certainly any one of those lines can uh, can be dangerous. And of course, I forgot to mention Arthur Kaliev, who plays a lot with Sajan and Studenich, who has only set the uh, led the league uh, as a 16-year-old in goals this year with uh, with 30 plus goals. So. 
Uh, Hamilton's only got a couple players in that top 25 in scoring, so they have a lot of depth up and down that line of Scott, and that certainly can make a difference. And anyone who has not always been following this team closely and thinks that Norm is being cute by coming up with cute nicknames for lines, and he called it the Firebird line, there's a reason for that. All three of those players were acquired from the Flint Firebirds, so it's not Norm just being really... um, Although that would be cool, too. If you want to come up with cool names for all the lines, that's okay. I'm reasonably imaginative, Scott, but I'm not sure. I wasn't that imaginative on that. But the, your your point is well taken, though, that this team in a playoff series, uh, there are going to be teams that will that don't have the bodies, and so they are going to play their top two lines over and over and over and over with the third line thrown in occasionally. And in a long series, that could be or should be a detriment. The Bulldogs shouldn't run into that problem unless suddenly injuries start chewing on them. They should be able to be reasonably well-rested and wear out other teams, you would think. Yeah, and then if you look on that fourth line, you can throw Isaac Nurse out there alongside, uh, you know, Zach Jackson or um, any one of those sort of extra guys that uh, that come in and help fill that that fourth line role, and, and that certainly gives them a lot of depth. The one area that, you know, when when you look back in Hamilton, when they kind of played in February, a lot of the big teams in the West, like Sault Ste. Marie and Kitchener and Sarnia, and even Owen Sound, who's who's the number four seed, uh, and we've seen it a little bit when they played Barry and Niagara. Is the defensive their defense can be a little bit vulnerable under pressure? I mean, any, any defense is, but certainly their defense they showed some cracks. And if there's an area that they kind of struggled in, that I'm sure Ottawa has been watching, is seeing if they can, you know, hockey cliche coming here, Scott, pucks in deep and and try to uh, put the pressure on and play the game in the offensive zone. Well, you talk about two other teams, and again, for those who are just <laughs> jumping on board with the whole bulldog thing here. The Bulldogs finished first in the East. Uh, They were the second-best team in the OHL. They were a pretty darn good hockey team this year. There wasn't a whole lot that you would point at and say that was really a disaster. This was pretty much a a, a solid to better-than-solid to really good year. However, there were two teams that for the life of them they could not beat, and that is Niagara and that is Barrie, and the way that the playoffs have lined up there is a potential that if they win this first round against Ottawa, next up would be Niagara, and if they could somehow win that, the next one would be Barry. That's a nightmare for them. Yeah, and that's certainly if the form chart holds. And I, and I know chatting about it with your colleague, Terry Pekoski, at one, at one of the games, and it's just, for whatever reason, those teams, you've seen it so often, Scott. I mean, you've watched enough sports, covered enough sports. It's just funny. There's sometimes that team that just is that matchup nightmare for you for whatever reason. Uh, and actually, Barry's ran it with, with Mississauga. The Steelhead's the seventh seed. Have beat, I think Mississauga has beaten Barry four to six games when they've played this yep. year. So there are some anomalies that, that, that just kind of happen for whatever reason. But Barry and Niagara against Hamilton, the speed matchup. But, you know, we have to be careful not to get ahead of ourselves too far since Hamilton has to take on an Ottawa 67 team that's uh, got rich, rich in junior hockey tradition. That said, uh, Mississauga, as you say, which finished seventh, plays Barry. Barry is a team that Hamilton just has had nightmares with, and Niagara plays Oshawa. Niagara they can't beat. If somehow Oshawa and Mississauga could pull the upsets here and knock out Barry and Niagara, first of all, the Bulldogs are going to be sending fruit baskets to both of those places. <laughs> but that would seem to make this a vastly more likely possibility of Hamilton going deep into these playoffs. Yeah, you'd have to think just, and it's funny, I mean, you look at the Eastern Conference and Hamilton just, uh, you know, they won their season series against every other team. And there's Ottawa, they won every game. Mississauga, they won every game. Oshawa, they won every game. 
uh, Kingston, they won, you know, Kingston, the, the number three seed, they, they beat them, I think, four to six times. So they have certainly, uh, for whatever reason, those two teams have just proven to be the nightmare. But you know what? It's been a, it's been a fun season. And I think, you know, the third season of junior hockey here in Hamilton, I heard you talking before I came on. I mean, this is, uh, this is a really good opportunity for this Bulldog franchise to, you know, potentially make a run. It's, it's sort of that we're in the dog days of the NHL season, so they can get them, you know, their, or get their uh, a little bit of a stranglehold here on the local market, get people excited before the NHL playoffs really kick in. And I think Steve Stales and Michael Anlauer, the owner, know that this is a good opportunity uh, for this team to, to perhaps go on a deep run and, and really uh, drag some people out who uh, haven't had an opportunity to go to perhaps as many games as we would have liked them to go to. Well, how, how much does this playoff run, then, especially the beginning of this, before, as you say, it's a good point, before the Leafs get into the playoffs and suddenly all the oxygen in the room, hockey-wise, gets sucked up by the Leafs, how important is the first couple rounds of these playoffs, not just to win, but to win and look kind of exciting or at least dominant or, or something. It, it seems to me you've got a, a, a brief window here to really make some hay in this market. You really do. And uh, it, it is a chance to captivate the market here in Hamilton. We know there's hockey fans in Hamilton, uh, you know, and perhaps they haven't found their way down to first Ontario Centre. Though certainly the Hamilton, even without those two school day games, I think was in the top third of the OHL in attendance. So, uh, it's a little different than the AHL days. You know, you get yourselves four or 5,000 in the building on a regular basis in the OHL. You're doing okay. Uh, but, no, I, I think this is an opportunity for them to kind of captivate people a, a little bit. They've got some really intriguing stories. You know, Robert Thomas, who played in the World Juniors. Matt Strome, he's got the two brothers playing the NHL or in, in the pros. And um, there's there's a lot of Isaac Nurse, the hometown guy, Sajin. Uh, there's a lot of great stories. And I say this all the time. To me, this is one of the fun things getting to, to cover junior hockey you get to see so many players come through and that go on to be pros. That in the AHL days, you know, we wouldn't have seen um, Connor McDavid come through our building in the AHL days. Or I mean, we barely saw Carey Price. Right? We got him for a playoff, and that was it. <laughs> well, I mean, is it? Do the Bulldogs have to? Is winning enough? Is winning enough in these playoffs to get that attention, or do they have to win a certain way to get people's attention? Uh, you know what? I mean, it's it's this is a. Uh, this is a town where a lot of people still harken back to the days of the Steelhawks and uh, playing at Mountain Arena, and that that kind of brand of junior hockey isn't isn't around anymore. But uh, certainly, if they can be a physical, high-scoring, uh, exciting team, put up some numbers, they they've got a chance to uh, to really uh, captivate people here. And it, it it's a good opportunity, and we'll see. I mean, at the same time, uh, this organization has started to build a foundation. They've they brought in good people, and they're, and they're starting to lay the foundation to make a long-term run. And Mike Landlauer's intentions, you've covered it in The Spectator, are very well documented, right? He's looking to put an arena and, and or help out in any way to, to get a, a more junior hockey suit at home. And, and certainly they've, they've demonstrated their commitment to the market. And hopefully people uh, come out and, and enjoy the game. It's, it's a great product, that's for sure. Well, you, it's funny you talk about you know the, the style of hockey that has been very popular here in the past, and the guys, that, I mean, the very first year of the Hamilton Bulldogs in the AHL, first or second year, the, the hero, the guy whose name they were chanting for was Dennis Bonvey, who I think still holds the all-time American Hockey League or minor league record for most penalty minutes in a season. I mean, he well, was in there for about 72 straight hours at one point. <laughs> That team, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I mean, that team in that first year, I was a season ticket holder back then, but they had Dennis Bonvey, George LaRock, yep. and then another guy named Marty Later, who I think was also <laughs> up around three or 400 <laughs> minutes. So it was almost a scene out of Slapshot when they got on the ice. 
Well, but those are the guys that over the years, you're right, Hamilton fans have loved. Now, that that doesn't exist, as you say, in the game anymore. No. But what's really interesting about this is the team they have right now, the OHL team, different game for sure. This is a high, high, high skill team without, I don't think, I mean, is there anybody that you would even call tough on this? I mean, there's tough guys, but not like tough guys like we would talk about in the past. There's nobody that falls into that category. This is a... This is a team that will not hit you into submission. It'll score you into submission if they're doing well. And I, I think, you know, to your point, you'd be hard-pressed to scan around many OHL rosters and find those kind of players anymore. They'd be suspended uh, immediately. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Ottawa, and there was a guy named Ed Boxcar Hospital, right? I mean, those guys, <laughs> <laughs> you're not nicknamed Boxcar because you're a goal scorer. I mean, those, those are the kind of guys that, that played back then, and, and the game has changed so much. And I know it's not that everybody's liking, but certainly it, it's a high-skill, high-speed game, and if you don't have it, you can't play. Why did all the tough guys have all the best nicknames? <laughs> Honestly, you look through the list. All the tough guys had the best nicknames. I don't know when, why that happened, why we couldn't come up with good names. Where are the nicknames anyway for hockey players? Is there one guy on the Bulldogs who has a nickname? Other than, see, here's the hockey thing now, is your norm. If you were a hockey player, you'd be normie. Oh, absolutely. You just throw the Y on there. Yeah, and you'd be Radzi or something, or yep. Scotter or Scotty or, yeah. Yeah, if you've got a, a Y on your name, you cut the Y off and you add an er, and if you don't have a Y, you just <laughs> add the Y. But where have the good nicknames gone in hockey? Absolutely, you know, it's funny. I mean, well, once they called Wayne Gretzky the great one, everything was kind of taken. Well, there was the great one, and then they couldn't think of anything, so then it became the marvelous one, or Mary, yeah. and then Connor McDavid is now the next one. It's like, come on, guys, let's, yeah. what comes after the next one? The next, the one, next the one, next one, the one after the next one. <laughs> they, they're just going to become cumbersome and stupid. Anyway, um, back to this. I just, if Niagara, if um, Barry both go out and look, there's a chance because both the teams that they are playing against have given them fits this year. And if Hamilton looks good right off the bat, because they have been up and down, they've had moments of looking tremendous and they've had moments yep. of looking like they're not really figuring it out. Is this a team that you will look at and say, you know what, you take out the teams that have caused them stumbles, this is a team that should roar right to the finals? I mean, you don't it, want to look ahead, but it seems like that. It, it's certainly the opportunity there for this team. And you know what, I, you look at that Mississauga team, they've got Owen Tippett, who's probably, he's, I think, one of the most, he's certainly one of the most dangerous goal scorers in the league. Mike McLeod, who's a first-round pick, and Nick Haig, who's in the top 15 in the league in scoring as a defenseman. So that's a team that in a short, in a series, if they get hot, could be a real handful for anybody. So, um, but certainly for Hamilton, they've, they've they've assembled this team, and you know we've chatted about it already. They they've built this team to to try to go along. So they've given their team the best opportunity, and now we'll have to see what transpires on the ice. Uh, you know what? If if it if it doesn't go for them, they wouldn't be the first team that's been built to succeed. Uh, heck, whole NHL trade deadline shows we've uh, we've declared team Stanley Cup champions, and and they're out in the first round, right? Well, okay. Last thing, and this is this is where yeah. it all comes to because. We know what the modern day version of hockey runs on, and that is goaltending. And mm-hmm. you cannot win. I can't think of the last NHL team to win a Stanley Cup without having the hottest goalie, not the best goalie, the hottest goalie in the playoffs. I can't think yeah. of the last team. That is what is that's the engine that drives your team now. So yeah. the Hamilton Bulldogs have Caden Fulcher. He is a 19 year old kid. He signed with the Detroit Red Wings. He is a good goalie. Is he a great goalie? Is he a guy, when you look around the league and see the other goalies that are in the playoffs, 
Is he a guy that you sit there and you say, I am willing to gamble everything I've done. If you're Steve Steos, everything I've done to build this team, I'm comfortable gambling it on the back of Caden Fulcher carrying us to the finals. Well, Fulcher has certainly progressed a tremendous amount this year over where he was last year where Dawson Cardi came in the overager at the trade deadline and eventually took over the job, the number one job. So Fulcher has, has progressed tremendously. The interesting thing about him is, and this whole Hamilton Bulldog team, the way they play, they give up the third fewest shots on goal in the league. They're not a team that is really going to ask their goalie to be spectacular. They just want their goalie to be solid. And, and that's, for the most part, what Fulcher has been this year. Has he, has he stolen games for them? I'm not sure he's had one of those real 40, 50 crazy save performances that, you know, automatically make him the first star. But he certainly has played well, and he's certainly made, been capable of making some, some great saves. So, and, and before I go, Scott, I would be remiss if I didn't give a quick plug to Cable 14, who will be broadcasting with a 50-minute pregame show before the game. So 6.45 on the air tomorrow night uh, with a pregame, a little 15-minute black and gold pregame because it's the playoffs and uh, we figured that people are going to be looking for that extra information. So hopefully if people are at the rink, they tune in. Norm Miller, you can catch him on Cable 14. All the games, as you say, all the playoff games on TV or also down at the rink. Norm, appreciate you doing this. Back to soccer. Thanks, Scott. Take care. You know, the one question about the goaltending, uh, and Caden Fulcher, the kid who they are entrusting with this, is a good goalie, but there were goalies, including some of the very best in the league who may have been available at the trade deadline, and Hamilton didn't make that move. They decided that he was a kid who was now in position, that he was good enough, that you could trust him, that he was going to be the guy. It, we will see. Because the Bulldogs made a ton of trades this year. They made a ton of moves. The one move they didn't make was goalie. And we will see if that was a wise move to save what you have and to save your pieces and not give it up for something you didn't need or if down the road they're going to say, man, I wish we had done that. But that is because the whole thing, it's hockey. It begins and ends with a goalie. But tomorrow night, 7.30. I'm sure it's 7.30. I'll double check on that one. But 7.30. uh, First game is at First Ontario Centre. Game two is Sunday, also in the evening at First Ontario Centre. This is where it's going to be really interesting. Because you know what else is on Sunday? The Around the Bay Race. And the Around the Bay Race finishes inside First Ontario Centre. You run down the tunnel when you come off York Boulevard, you turn the corner and you sprint down the middle of what would be the ice. It's actually covered up so people don't slip and slide and tear their groin muscles. But you run down the middle and you go through the clock to stop the clock and you finish there. But when the Around the Bay race ends, probably about 3 o'clock, the last person will come in, 2.33, they have to tear down everything to do with the Around the Bay race, as well as all of the stuff that is around the rest of the arena on the concourse, get it out of there and get the arena ready for a 7.30 start, which means really being ready by about 6 at the latest maybe earlier than that, it is going to be, it's almost worth the show just to go and watch these guys try and get this arena turned around. That will actually be kind of cool. Even if you don't like hockey, just go early and watch them spin the arena around from around the bay to being ready for hockey. That'll be, uh, that'll be something. We'll see. We'll see how the ice is. Because the big, the big fear, and you can read Terry Pekoski's piece at thespec.com about this, the big fear is if it's warm on Sunday, it gets humid in the building because the door has to be open. The big gate has to be open for runners to come in. If it's warm, the humidity builds up underneath the 
plywood that's on the ice and the ice gets really soft or brittle if they have to turn up the cooling too much so they could either be skating on broken glass or on applesauce as the game comes along they're hoping for cool temperatures of course the runners don't really want to run though in minus five degrees especially the guys who wear those little wispy singlets and super short shorts the scott radley show the scott radley show weeknights from six to eight on 900 chml